everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Prestige, a podcast about films, filmmaking, filmmakers, made by film lovers for film lovers. Each week we talk about a different film, we give a bit of a review, and then talk about some of the themes and ideas that it throws up, and we end with our recommendations based on this week's film. We're going through a director season at the moment, so we have a mini-season of each director's work that lasts about a month, and we are currently uh, bringing to a close our Ben Wheatley season, but more on that later. Firstly, we'd like to start by talking about what else we've watched this week. Have we had time to watch anything else? Uh, Rob, how about you? I have started a new TV series with the conclusion of Westworld last week, which was my big sort of prestige show I've been watching. I've been looking for something new to dive into. And so off the back of some heavy recommendations online, uh, when I, I asked it was any good, I have started watching The Handmaid's Tale. Based on the book of the same name, essentially it is a dystopian future um, that seems far closer to reality, shall we say, than many dystopian futures. Um, It's often about Mm. women's rights and the place of women in society and how, you know, taken to a heightened dystopian world. But it has interesting things to say about how we treat women and the role of feminism in the modern day. It's brilliant. Uh, Elizabeth Moss is great in it. Um... Yvonne Straczynski, who plays um, one of the uh, antagonists, is great. And it's, everyone seems perfectly cast in this show. Um, but it is a, a horrific show. It is, it is a show with fresh horrors every week. Um, so it's to say I enjoy it, it's probably pushing it a little bit. But I think it's a great TV show. What about you, Sam? Well, this week, um, also on a TV theme, it's been the tale of two comedies, really. Um, neither of which I'm sure that I'll pursue but for very different reasons um, the first one is uh, by was written by my others Robert Popper who's done a lot of comedy work most recently Friday Night Dinner which I very much enjoyed it's called Stath Let's Flats and it's a bit hit and miss and it, yeah as I said I'm not sure I'd, I'd, I'll stick with it but I appreciated the fact that it was trying new things and it's playing with this idea of awkwardness in comedy that is seen lots of the past 20 years. Um, so yeah, it, it was doing interesting things. It's about um, a lettings agent and not really a, a mine of comedy gold, but not a subject that's been tackled very much for that reason. Um, and some of it worked and some of it didn't. But yes, I, I appreciate that it was trying to do something new. I've also been watching, well, I also watched the first episode of, and I certainly won't watch any more, um, Mortar and Whitehouse Gone Fishing. Which, I mean, you you look at the trailer, I was looking at the trailer and think, well, is, isn't that just two old men talking? And I'm where I'm. I'm stepping into difficult waters here when I talk about not really enjoying two men talking to each other. Shh! shh don't point the elephant in the room. <laughs> um, but it, it just—I mean, that—that's all it was. I it watched it thinking, well, that's what the trailer's given me. Maybe there's something more. There really isn't anything more. It's just Bob Mortar and Paul Whitehouse 
talking and that's it so I, I won't be won't be venturing any further with that one fair enough fair enough uh, I, I have some friends who who love that show but I feel it's kind of those kind of background just being hugged show rather than I think you know want anyone to sort of uh, yes binge on it, it it suffers from the fact that I've heard um, Arabella Weir in the first show talking about how she was treated by her male co-stars and I therefore don't think very highly of Paul Whitehouse and never really found Bob Mortimer funny so <laughs> there is no reason for me to feel hugged by it. Given that history I'm impressed you even watched one to be honest yeah, True yes well I've tried As Sam has said we're this week we are continuing and concluding our Ben weekly season and we are picking up with his latest film, the 2016 film Free Fire. Here he is. A thousand apologies. Hate it when people are tardy. It's good to meet you, boys. Thanks for coming out. You didn't masturbate before you got here, did you? You what? <laughs> I told you I don't want to work with anybody who's carrying a loaded weapon. Fuck the small talk. Let's buy some guns, eh? You're on a different level now. The guy who represents this merchandise, his lawn is bigger than your whole fucking country. Justine, as gorgeous as ever. Well, you've uh, put on a bit of weight. Fuck off. Free Fire is, in many ways, a sort of a, a capsule film. It all takes place in one location, almost entirely in real time, if not exactly in real time. A, it is a sale of a, a drug deal in which the IRA are attempting to buy some drugs, some, some guns even, a, drug, a gun deal, um, some guns from some South African, American and an ex-Black Panther um, who are offering to sell them so these guns. What is initially a misunderstanding um, grows into being a conflict, which grows into being a out-and-out firefight. Um, and it isn't a spoiler to say that that firefight lasts the entire movie a film that is very light on narrative very light on plot but heavy on action heavy on character beats sam how did you find this jump to hollywood for ben wheatley from the previous week's more lo-fi indie british affair we talked last week about having some sort of trepidation about what was going to happen with Ben Wheatley when he got to Hollywood and I have to say I really enjoyed this, I thought it was a brilliant film and I mean the the acting performances were great there were times when I thought is this really just one firefight but yeah I just went with it um, there are actors that I've loved in other things um, Charlotte Copley I like um, and it, it just, I mean, it, it seemed that Ben Wheatley had, had the, the perfect balance of sort of bringing in acting talent that he'd been working with. So Michael Smiley is an example of that, but then also stepping it up a gear. And I think this is perhaps best represented by, um, it's a sort of a throwaway conversation that they have when they're entering the warehouse at the beginning and um, Michael Smiley talks about Hollywood and they think, the, the Americans in the party think he's talking about Hollywood, California and he says he makes it quite clear that he is not talking about Hollywood, California he's talking about Hollywood County Down um, 
which I, I've known about for years, but only because my aunt lives there. Um, it's so immediately Ben Wheatley is playing with that idea of it going to Hollywood, but not really being there, not really being a part of Hollywood. To quote Michael Smiley, it's none of your Cecil B. DeMille bullshit. And that is what we got. This is so Cecil B. DeMille, huge Hollywood director from the early years of Hollywood cinema. And it was a lot about facade and pageantry and big things on the big screen. And Ben Wheatley is explicitly saying right at the beginning of this film, through Michael Smiley, I don't want any of that. This is... This is gritty. This is set in the 1970s. This is um, engaging with ideas about guns and gun running and different terrorist groups. But more more important than anything, this is not some glitzy blockbuster that I'm doing here. I'm I'm presenting you with something real. I haven't sold mm. out. I I would I would echo that entirely. I think I, I love this film. I, I I have nothing but good things about this film. I went into it a bit, bit trepidatious um, because I have so enjoyed his last few films um, for the dark weirdness um, that he brings to the screen, and I was very unsure how that would translate into the um, Hollywood model as, as I discussed last week. And I don't think it does. I don't think he brings the weirdness that he's certainly evident in Kill List and certainly evident in um, Field in England. But I do think he brings certain things with him. So if you look at things like Down Terrace and Fields in England, there's a, a claustrophobia to those. Both of them take place mostly in a single location, the field and the uh, terraced house of Down Terrace. And here that's transposed into this Boston warehouse. And that the sense of space and the sense of using the space you're in as, as, as a character in your movie as much as a as the characters themselves and often we talk about that we talk about you know new york being a character in the movie or london being a character in the movie and here it, it isn't a really boston isn't a character but the the building is and suddenly the geography mm. of this room matters and you know who can get to the stairs yes. what's behind that door what's the way in like that the real physical space in which this takes place is key in the same way is in down terrace down terrace you know the, the sort of the kitchen sink drama the tension that's built in that film is because that place is so small and it is cramped and you can't push each other on the stairs and you can't push each other in the hallway and that same sense of of place is what is what he brings to it i think mean, as you say he has some regular actors and there's a feeling of lesser known actors kind of stepping up to be um the leads at times in this and i think the casting and i'll come to more later it was 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 great i think that the Every person in this was perfectly pitched from the suave and cocky Arnie Hammer playing uh, Ord, the uh, American, who has that element of being suave and cocky, yet also kind of you feel he could do what he's supposed to do. You know, he, he is he's competent as well as as well as cocky. That seemed, I didn't notice that was Arnie Hammer at all. Possibly, um, it, you get the real, and I think. We've talked about this in the past about characters being defined by small moments. And you have in this room characters that could be very one note. You know, you've got the IRA on one side and the Americans on the other, and the South Africans. And this, Ben Wheatley and Amy, his writing partner and editor, sketch great characters here. You know the difference between the two Irishmen, you know the difference between uh, South African and um, Ord, and even their underlings. Each, bring, each of them bring two sort of you know, muscle men to carry things and move things around. Each one of them are 
perfectly sketched in a very quick manner on the way in before it all kind of breaks loose. But I think that the real, the real triumph of this movie is is the action, is the the shooting back and forth, the sort of staccato jazz that he kind of conjures up with with the uh, the firefight. And at a certain point, it does that the music does break down into jazz going along with it, which I thought was a really interesting kind of thing that they do, where you start hearing this sort of as gunshots go off, you hear the soundtrack echoing and repeating them, and kind of doing that same kind of idea that gunshots can be. Uh, so be musical as well as just a uh, a action point. Mm. And I was thinking, when th- there's a sort of lull in the shooting at one point, and I, I think it's when 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 they they first decide they've got to get to the phone, and so the, there's relative silence in the soundtrack, but there's a sort of high ringing whining sound. And I don't know, it's not clear enough to know whether it's a musical instrument, whether this is part of this jazz idea, but it's it's kind of, it feels immersive. It feels like we have just been subjected to this firefight ourselves. As the audience, you're put in the position of discomfort at having had a gun gone off. And that's exactly mm. what he does in in places in the soundtrack. What I think that's a... Ben Wheatley looks at doing is kind of telling the story behind the story and here it feels like he's looked at Hollywood and think you know what you guys shoot guns like it's nothing Mm. you know you shoot off bullets like it's absolutely nothing and everyone's a brilliant shot or they're a terrible shot and you know and the the idea particularly in Hollywood of of pain and violence doesn't really um you you feel it you know people get shot and they keep walking or, or, or they die Yes. Whereas this, you do f- you feel every shot, person as getting shot and the person shooting, you feel the, the the noise, you feel the ringing in your ears, and people get shot and you they don't die straight away. Some people, I mean, there, there aren't obviously deaths in this movie, um, but you feel that the, the bullet oh, into the shoulder, into the arm, into the leg. Um, you feel the pain that comes with every every bullet that enters the body. It feels like there's a kind of deconstruction of, of the Hollywood model of what does what does getting shot look like in a Hollywood world? It's still Hollywood shiny, but what does that that pain and that violence look like? Exactly, and, and to play. I was going to say when 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 it first when it first happens to Charlton Copley, his first concern is with his suit. It's like this is the Hollywood response, and the response to him is, "Well, what are you talking about? This is stupid. The suit's worth nothing relative mm. to you." Think about the pain of actually being shot. And but it's it's that it's that if you feel the pain, and I think that you know interesting. There's, there's I can't remember who says it, but something about how you only really know yourself when you sort of face death, and there is that the, all the sort of bravado of everybody and all the characters and the facade they put up um, prior to the breakdown of communications, it all kind of goes away once the shooting starts. Mm. And people are revealed to be who they really are. And some people are revealed to be competent. Some people are revealed to not be competent. Some people are revealed to be very mercenary. And some people are revealed to be very loyal to to their family and their, and their side, as it were. And some people aren't. And I think it's interesting, the idea that the, the kind of this facade that, we, that, that people have, even in this kind of everyone in the room's a criminal, mm. that all of that melts away in the face of possible death and killing and violence. It does feel, and this moves on to something I want to talk about thematically, it feels like once you have everything stripped away like that, loyalty is what you're left with. And 
it's this bizarre sense that you can be loyal to someone because I, I don't know because you 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 come from the same family or you have the same background and I think it, other other thing bravado goes out the window. What is important is loyalty at this point. Mm. And I think there's there is that like, the feeling of like because the um, the character of Stevo clearly starts the whole thing. He he's he's the antagonist that kicks off the whole fight, mm. and he's ultimately in the wrong for all of this. He he's the one who acted terribly like before, and he's the one who kicks off again in the fight um, to kick it all off. So like he. But they, and it would be very easy for his team to turn him. Yes, and say that you've screwed it up for all of us. So we're gonna, we're not, we're gonna disavow you. We're gonna step away from you and let you take the punishment of what you've done. But they don't. They sit together to, to the point of death. Um, they stick together because that's the loyalty they have. One of them is kind of a familial relationship, and one is obviously a bit more of a ethical kind of on the same side in the fight but, um, relationship. But there is a feeling of that like, you stick together in the same way that there isn't quite on the other side. That Vern, Martin, Ord, and Harry very quickly kind of start turning on each other mm. uh, and start to not view each other as a cohesive unit. It is strange this film. You do feel like the film's trying to make you sympathise or empathise with the IRA, mm. which is which is a weird thing. You think about it, like the, the, the Cillian Murphy character is certainly feel you what, what uh, one you're supposed to sort of be on the side of the scrappy little um, Irishman against all the sort of the veneer of the Americans. So it is a, that, that, that was a weird moment for me. They're thinking, well, they are, they are still the IRA. Like, you know, they are still, you shouldn't feel bad about any of the death in this movie because none of them are good people. Yeah, it's it's sort of a, a white supremacist, South African, a, a bunch of IRA members and a few American mercenaries. But I think it's slightly twisted for me by the fact that I just love Killian Murphy and I would empathise with him anyway, whatever character mm. he was playing. So I've always found Cillian Murphy a little bit, I don't know, creepy, for want of a better word. <laughs> I think that, you know, he, he, his, his turns in things like Red Eye and the Batman um, movies and even 28 Days Later, like he's always had an element of being a little bit too skinny, a little bit too intense. Um, but here, it was he has some real charisma in this role mm. um, and a real kind of sense of, of screen presence, especially in his relationship with um, with Brie Larson throughout this. Like he, he, he do feel like there's a, a charming Cillian Murphy in there in a way that I've probably not seen. I haven't seen Peaky Blinders, which is a big show he's on currently. Um, but uh, it did feel like a different Cillian Murphy than I'm used to. He is is very good in The Revenant. Um, him and Tom Hardy and... I don't want to say Leo DiCaprio, he's alright. Um, but there are, there are some really good performances in that. And people like Lee Murphy who are sort of pre-America. American, when, when Americans were immigrants and knew they mm. were... Um, and the film says some really interesting things about it. So he's very good in The Revenant. Well, I'd say uh, he, he, it was brilliant to see him in this movie. And I think, I mean, to talk about the film and it's, it's more of how it was made rather than I've using it. 
one thing that I really loved was the sense, as I touched on earlier, the sense of space and place in this movie. That the film, in, in movies, often you have sort of the, the, what's called the 180, 180 rule. That you sort of, you draw a line and you stay on one side of that line. So if you're doing a conversation, you draw a line between the two people and you mm. cut between looking at one person and looking at the other. But you always stay on the same side of that line. The idea being that people understand that. They can, you know, when you look at it, one person on the left, one person on the right, you cut between those two things. If you cross that line, it gets confusing because people can't really place themselves. They don't understand um, sort of where the action is playing. This film doesn't do that overly. Um, now, we have we do have certain elements of, you know, we, we always tend to see people from the same side. But you do, the fate that you don't sort of, I'm trying to say here, the... The space they're in, that the abandoned warehouse they're in, because they break that 180 rule quite willingly, and they cut between side on and top down, and like really like occasionally like on the gun or on the gas canisters, you get a whole sense of space. Mm. That rather than the background being a background, which is what, what whilst the 180 rule is very useful for conversations, it does separate out the actors from the background. Here, they feel very part of that world I mean, it helps they're all lying down for most of the film um, and the film gets down there in the dirt with them but you do get this feet you really start to sense the space you sense the space in terms of how far they are from each other the, you know what else is in the room going up the stairs and the the way they've shot that the the breaking of that 180 rule and the fact the camera gets down on the same level as the like they're lying down when it needs to and then pulls back up when it needs to as well you're always feeling rooted in space mm. also and i think it it's it, they do it for a reason that you've mentioned there as well is to aid in the confusion the the 180 rule, like you said, it makes sense. You can understand it visually, spatially. You can understand A on the left, B on the right. Okay, fine. Is we don't and I understand what you're saying about the sort of sketching the characters out at the beginning, and we know who they are, but it becomes difficult to tell at one point who's on which side because everyone's shooting each other and the camera's moving around all over the place, mm. and it becomes very confusing. It's like it's just channels the experience of be- again of being involved in this fight. And this fight being something that's happening to you as as an as an audience member, you do feel part of the action. I feel like you're say in in the dirt, and I think it helps that the the set design's so good. Like the the place is dirty and dusty, and that shows. You know, like that they do get all their pristine and the brilliant seventies fashions that they all wear do get mussed up. You know, and they do you do feel that kind of texture to it. Um, and I think that's one of the sort of the Ben Wheatley strengths is, is presenting a a filmic texture. If you think of it, think back to things like um, Kill List, like that film for it was a very very different film to Free Fire. You get the sort of slightly cheesy, slightly middle class British texture to it. Mm. You know, you, it's service stations, it's little hotels, it's it's that. Whereas this, it's more of a sort of a, a, a grainy texture, given all the sort of the dirt in the air and everything being run down. And it's that kind of I know that scramble that you get from all the characters. I really kind of start feeling to be part of that world. You feel the dirt and the dust in the air, and and that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah. 
So, Rob, do you have any further further reading, further watching recommendations for us this week? I do. I've got two. One actually and one from a crew point of view. So my first actually one um, won't be a surprise to anyone at all. Uh, Brie Larson, who plays Justine in this, who is brilliant in this, um, especially for sort of the last ending bit of the movie, shall we say. Her next film was a film, one of my best films, my favourite films of last year, um, and that was Kong Skull Island. Um, I'm always a fan of any kind of kaiju movie, any kind of giant monster movie, and King Kong was one of my first real loves when it came to uh, kaiju films. And the modern version of that in Kong Skull Island was, I think if it wasn't one of my best films of last year, I really, really enjoyed that. I thought it was beautiful, I thought it was well done, and Brie Larson makes an appearance in that, and she's great in that as well. My second recommendation is um, a bit more convoluted, but bear with me here. As I mentioned earlier, I thought this film had great casting throughout. I think it had a good mixture of known names and unknown names and people playing to type and against type. And every character, by the nature of their casting, the actors portraying them, the look and their feel, really helped sketch out their character in a very quick manner. Um, so the casting director of the movie um, was someone called Shaheen Baig, um, who has done a lot of movies over the years. Um, and for a, a bit of insight, for a while I tried to get into the casting business. I really enjoyed being involved in casting. In the end, I ended up going down the technical route, but I do enjoy the casting process of films. And she was involved in casting a movie that I very much enjoy. Um, weirdly, also linked to Cillian Murphy, though he doesn't actually appear in it. Um, and that's the 2007 film, 28 Weeks Later. So the sequel to the 28 Days Later, the Cillian Murphy zombie film. Um, this one picks up with Robert Carlyle. And whilst it isn't quite as good as the first one, um, it doesn't have the same kind of raw energy that the first film brought to the screen. It does have some great performances. It does have some really kind of haunting moments. And a lot of that comes from sort of the power of Robert Carlyle as the actor and his self-supporting cast. So yeah, that's a kind of a way to me to slip in a zombie film, um, but also to recommend uh, Shaheen's work as a casting director. What about you, Sam? Well, I have one actor recommendation and then one sort of more tonal. Um, My actor recommendation is... The brilliant Charter Copley, who was great in this, as just just a Weasley. It's just so annoying. Brilliant. <laughs> um, uh, so Charter Copley was also in one of, I think, one of my top ten films of all time. It's brilliant. I love it. I love it for what it says about um, it, politics and race and. It's an alien film as well, and the world falls apart, and it goes a bit post-apocalyptic. It's just brilliant. It has everything in it. It's District 9 from 2009. Neil Blomkamp film starring Charlotte Copley and also David James, but mainly Charlotte Copley in the lead role for that. I do love District 9. My second recommendation is a more tonal one, and it's another film from last year, um, and I think in terms of the the sort of thematic of a space that we've been talking a lot about this week, um, the claustrophobia, and also I suppose the similarities, not too surprising given the pedigree of the two directors, is Edgar Wright's Baby Driver 
from last year, mm-hmm. which I said at the time I didn't enjoy as much as I thought I was going to, but then it would have been difficult to enjoy it as much as I thought I was going to. I thought it was very good. So then my recommendation this week, District 9 and Baby Driver. Brilliant, thank you. Well, guys, that is our conclusion to the Ben Wheatley month. Um, next month, we're moving on to No Director, and unfortunately, we will be without Sam for the next month. Um, I'm trading him in for a new model. Um, and so we're going to have a guest host, as Sam is going to be with us, with um, Chris McLennan, who actually appears currently as one of the co-hosts of the Space Jam Continuum. Um, he's going to be talking with me about Wes Anderson for the next month. Spoiler alert, I am not a Wes Anderson fan. I never have been. Um, and Chris is intending to try and convert me to him. So we will be back next week with Bottle Rocket, the first of the Wes Anderson films we'll be covering. Now, I have legitimate other reasons for ducking out this month, but Rob thinks at the back of his mind that I'm just doing it to avoid Wes Anderson. I'm not. I'm really not. Honest. I can't blame him for wanting that. I'm not allowed to, guys. Um, I, this is not a this is not a, a month I'm looking forward to. I am, you know what? I am going to it with open heart, open mind. Um, but uh, it is coming up against the fact that I'm not a Wes Anderson fan. Um, Till then, guys, you can find us online at Pretty Podcast. You find just me on Twitter at Life underscore Academic, and you can find just me at Rob Kaiju. If you like our show, guys, if you want to help us make more of these shows, we do have a Patreon for Kaiju FM. We offer you know, merch, we offer secret bonus episodes, we offer a whole podcast about Kaiju films that I do. If you like us, you want to support us, please go over to patreon.com forward slash Kaiju FM or just go to kaiju.fm and click on support us. Throw a couple of dollars our way. It really helps us keep the lights on and keep the, uh, the show going for you guys. And we'll see you back here next week. <laughs>